several times of course if you don't know by now that it's Valentine's Day you're in big trouble probably but it kind of cracks me up and I've used this for an illustration before that the people you know at Hallmark or American Greetings how they create these cards for us and then we go and we shop at Walmart and we pick them up and you know maybe you're more like the funny card person you like uh, this one what do you say I mean if you're a writer for uh, for American Greetings and what would you put inside the card if you had one that says, shows waffle on the front. I love you a waffle lot, right? I mean, how do you come up with this stuff, right? It, it takes like a serious genius, right, to, to come up with this. But I, I've used this for an example before, but it's so true that sometimes we affirm these things that are written in these cards. We just sign our name to the bottom. And there's just some dude in Cleveland, you know, he's like behind a desk and he's writing lines and you know, coming up with this stuff, you know, these mushy, gushy things, and then we're like, yeah, that's, that's true, but not so much, but this is as close as I can get to this matching my special someone, so I'll sign my name to the bottom, and we give our spouse or our, our special someone a card, and somebody else wrote it, some dude in, in American Greetings, who's like, that's what he does for a living, right? And, and you're like, is this stuff, like, how can I say this is all true? And we know that the best thing is to take our own pen and our own hand and begin to write in our card ourselves to a special someone, talk about our memories, our experiences, and all those things that mean something to us for that person. And they read that, and that means a lot more than what they get from American Greetings. And so we know that when something comes from our own experience, right, it has special significance. It's unique significance. And so as we talk about happiness and we look at Paul's words, what he writes to the Philippian church when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. He's saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Okay, let me say it again real quick here so that you don't forget. And again, I say rejoice. All right, he's not at a church office somewhere with a pen thinking, You know, this is a good thing to write to these people. Rejoice. And he's not some seminary professor who's in his office preparing a teaching lesson for his students, and he's saying, oh, this would be great. I'll write this down. That sounds good. And he's not a monk in a monastery, isolated from the real world and society, coming up with rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul is in the midst of hardship and difficulties. He's in prison. And I think that's so important to frame that up again this week is because it's easy for us to read the words of God and think, well, that sounds right for some people or other people or in other situations, but not mine. God's promises can't be true. His command to rejoice in the Lord always, it can't really be true in my situation. 
But Paul says otherwise. Paul's not just signing his name to something that God sends down. All right? God spoke through him, through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, inspired of God. But nevertheless, Paul is the human element in this, and he's experiencing real difficulties and real hardship, and he's writing to rejoice in the Lord always. And I love the, the, the example that Paul gives. In Acts, we have Paul who, in Silas, his, they're thrown into prison. And not only are they thrown into prison, but it, in Acts it says they've been inflicted with many blows. They've been beaten, beaten silly. And they're in the prison, the inner part. They're fastened, their feet are in stocks. And what are they doing? If you know the scripture passage, Paul and Silas, around midnight, they're singing hymns and praises to God. They're happy. They're in pain. They're in shackles. They're in a dungy, dirty prison, but they're happy. How is that possible? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's not a pipe dream. God wouldn't command something that he would not enable to be true. So the question before we pray is, are you happy? Honestly, are you happy in the Lord? Are you happy in Christ? So this final week, this third week on are you happy, I hope this will be something that you can really take with you again this week and really just apply it to your life, get to know Jesus better, and experience the joy that he promised to those who follow him. Let's pray. We'll look at Philippians. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that not only gives us your thoughts, your, your desires for us, God, but you also give us the Holy Spirit to be able to live out the words of Scripture that empower these words to come off the page and to be true and real in our lives. And God, I know that there are people here today who don't feel like rejoicing at all. Life is tough. Life is difficult. Things just keep coming at them. And God, I pray today they'll build their confidence more in you. And they'll take their eyes off of themselves and place them on you and on others. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me walk back through the last few weeks. Week number one, we talked about the foundation for rejoicing of being happy is the gospel. We hear the word of God, and by faith, God gives us, through the hearing of the word, he gives us more and more faith. Now, the words on the, of the Bible are not magic words. They just don't, although they're powerful, they just don't pop into your life, and all of a sudden, they work, and you're just a passive participant of that. That's not the way it works. God's word is spoken to us. The Holy Spirit engages the work, engages the word, and then we act, actively appropriate that word in, into our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit in order to address specific and actual situations that are going on. And so the gospel is applicable to every situation. Jesus is the gospel. He speaks into every situation of our life, and he addresses the source of the problem in our life. So if you think about your life and you think about the circumstance of your life or you think about the rude idols in your life, God wants to get down to the, the surface, down to what is causing or bringing about this. And that's what the gospel speaks to. It speaks to motivation. It speaks to intent of the heart. It doesn't just change behavior. It changes our heart. And so we said we have to just build on that foundation, not forget about that foundation. And then last week we talked about the fight for happiness. And I'm afraid this is where a lot of people go wrong. They do take that passive approach. 
They think, you know, I'm just passive to the process. God is supposed to just take me and just do things with me, and I'm, have, I'm supposed to just what, sit there and let go, right? And that's the way sometimes we've been trained on this. But that's not the way it works. The gospel requires radical action, radical measures in our life. Uh, we were reading in a Tim Keller Proverbs devotion this last week. We do this proverb uh, devotion with Harrison, and this was a really, really great devotion that we read. And Keller wrote this. He said, some kinds of Christianity put the emphasis on the will and life actions, other kinds on the emotions, worship, and praise. The Bible never, ever emphasizes one over the other or pits them against each other. So the point I made last week is don't be afraid of spiritual hard work. Don't be afraid of effort. Don't be afraid of dragging yourself out of bed and doing a routine even though you don't feel like it. We, we go against our natural inclinations so many times. Somebody was telling me this week, they said, most of the time the first thing I respond to a situation is the flesh. And so many times that's true. Oh, I just don't feel like getting up. I don't feel like pursuing God. I don't feel like praying. And we do the things that God has called us to do. The gospel doesn't allow us to to do whatever we want. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And then we talked about boasting in Jesus. And I think this is an important one. This is one of those kind of just a determination of the will that I'm going to speak the name of Jesus in situations and circumstances. Because I think, guys, we oftentimes are the most hesitant to speak the name of Jesus. Sometimes we just just don't want to say Jesus' name. And there's truly power in his name. There's power in who he is. And as we speak that truth, as we boast in Christ, things change. Things happen in our hearts and in those around us. And so I encourage you to take that practical step. We talked about that. To boast in Jesus. To make your prayers actually talking to Jesus. And then today we're going to talk about practically how the community of believers comes together to work in this process of working for one another's happiness. That it's just not an isolated thing that we do. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ working for our joy as well. I love what Randy Alcorn says in the book, Happiness. He says, imagine if our church was known for being a community of Jesus-centered happiness, overflowing with the sheer gladness of what it means to live out the good news of great joy. Imagine if our children brought their friends to church and their comment was, those people seem so nice and happy. Wouldn't this infuse the gospel with a meaning that most of the world has never heard and that even many of God's people have never known? I'm not talking about contrived happiness as a pretense or a strategy for church growth, but the genuine happiness that naturally flows from God and the gospel. That's what I desire Grace Church to be. That's what I desire my life to be, our family to be. That no matter what we go through, that God's happiness shines through. And we can learn from Paul as we go to uh, chapter 1 of Philippians, verses 19 to 26. We're going to see that we can learn from Paul the art of seeing God's purposes working out through our problems and difficulties. As we experience these things, God works through them. So take your Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 19 through 26. I'm going to go through this one verse at a time. He writes in verse 19, he says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of, the Holy, of Jesus Christ, 
this will turn out for my deliverance. So he's writing from prison, and he's saying, through your prayers, he's writing a letter to them. He's saying, you, you believers in Philippi, through your prayers and through the work of the Holy Spirit, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. So Paul isn't just being optimistic. He's showing incredible faith in the fact that he understands that in spite of what's going on around him and in his life, that he can truly live for Jesus and be delivered. We're going to see that in a second, what that means. But think about Paul for a second. Think about a guitar player who's trying to play the guitar with his hands tied behind his back. It'd be pretty tough, wouldn't it, to do? That's kind of Paul's situation here. Paul is a traveling evangelist, okay? He's a traveling evangelist. He goes around, preaches the gospel to different people, and he's stuck in a location, a bad location. Yet it doesn't thwart him for focusing on Christ and continuing just to share and shine the love of Christ. And how often are we tempted to feel discouraged when our plans fall apart, when other people are difficult and we're not, they're not working with us the way we think they should, and we get all upset and, all, uh, and unhappy. But in Christ, we have a purpose no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what situation, because we've been called to be ambassadors for Christ. So regardless of your situation, we can do our job of being an ambassador. And that's what Paul did. He's singing hymns, not because he has to. Turn to page 323 in your hymnal, Paul and Silas. Let's let's sing a song. No, he's doing it because it's an overflow of his joy. He loves God. In verse 19, he says, through your prayers. So the prayers of the family of God are impacting him. He's saying they make a difference. And the work of the Holy Spirit in his life make a difference. And so for us, let's pray for each other, okay? I know we say that. But there's, you know, even on a Sunday where it's rainy and a lot of people are home watching, some people slept in, there's still too many people here to pray for on a consistent, regular basis. I want to remind you, I hope you're in a K-group. I hope everyone here is part of a K-group. But it makes it very manageable to pray for your community of fellowship, for those who you do life with. If you're in a group with 10 to 12 people, you can consistently pray for these people on a regular basis. And they can be praying for you. But the truth is, most of us, by our actions, okay, by our actions, not by what we say, but by our actions, we don't really believe in the power of prayer. We don't. Otherwise, you would be praying for the people in your K group, but you're not, many of you. Because it doesn't matter. Oh, it matters, but it doesn't matter. And so I encourage you, if we believe to be true that prayer makes a difference, that it really does encourage others in the faith and helps them stay strong in the faith and resist temptation and deal with the struggles so they can show the happiness of Jesus and glorify God and more people are drawn to him, then we should do that. So if I just say pray for the church, you won't do it. Pray for your K group. Maybe some of you will respond to that. So Prayer was important for Paul, and he, he thanked them for praying for him. And then in verse 19, he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. And I love Paul's perspective here, his faith. He saw deliverance as either being executed for his faith or continuing to serve Jesus, continuing to serve the people that God has given to him. How does someone pray that? It's going to turn out for my deliverance. Either way, it's going to be delivering I'm either going to be delivered to Jesus or I'm going to be delivered back to you to continue to serve you. Verse 20, 
as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We looked at that in week one. We won't belabor that again, but I just love his confidence in God. He knows his situation's completely in God's hands. He's not concerned. What can they do? They can kill me, and I get to see Jesus face to face, or they can let me live and let me out, and I'll continue to serve Jesus till he's ready for me. No matter what happened, it was all for the glory of Jesus. Christ is going to be honored in me regardless. So Paul's goal is to honor Christ no matter what happened to him. His eyes weren't on himself. His eyes were upon Jesus and others. Jesus and others. And Paul desired to see Jesus more than anything, but he really truly also desired to continue to serve, to give his life away for people. Look at verse 22 and 23. If I am to live in the flesh, keep living, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My deepest, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. It's interesting. Why is he debating this? He's writing this text for us. Why is he debating this? Why is he like, okay, back and forth, here's the positives, here's the strengths on one and the other. He's setting a model for us. He's setting a model for the Philippian church. He wants them to see his selflessness, his putting their interests above his own. And so he says, verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Is Paul full of himself? Like, it's better if I stay here because then you get more of me, right? Is that what he's about? No. He knows that it's about just pouring out his life for people, just giving his life for the spiritual growth and the faith of the churches and the people that he serves. And so he, he's a model for them. He said it, he's showing them, here's what your life should be like, giving your life for others. And he says, verse 25, convinced of this, so he, he's convinced, he, he's pretty much come to the conclusion that God's going to keep him there. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you, with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith. I'm going to continue with you. I feel confident. I'm convinced God is going to keep me alive. And I'm going to continue just to give and share and minister for your growth and your joy. For your growth and your joy. Your growth and your joy. Everything about Paul's life was his commitment to advance the gospel for the joy of other people. He worked for others for their discipleship, becoming more and more like Christ in their lives, becoming to, knowing Christ more, living for him. And while the details of Paul's life sure look different than our lives, the truth is it's the same mission. Our mission is to work for the discipleship of others and the joy of others. The same thing. It, it's the same. Growing spiritually brings joy. Growing spiritually brings joy. But the opposite is true. Not growing brings misery, unhappiness. Maybe you're thinking, well, not so true, Pastor John. Pretty happy and I'm not following Jesus. Well, let me say a couple things. One is, if you're truly a Christ follower, if the Holy Spirit resides in you, 
you can't help but be miserable if you're not fulfilling the calling that God has put on your life. The Holy Spirit will not allow that to take place. He won't. He yearns he, he, for, for God's will to be done. The model of Jesus. Jesus could do nothing of his own. He could only do what he saw the Father doing. The same model for us. And so if the Holy Spirit is in us, if we're a believer and we're not pursuing discipleship or we're not growing in our faith, there's no real happiness to be found there. And, and, and then sometimes we can be like take the middle road. Well, I'm not growing, but I'm not really doing that bad. But you know what? If you're just stagnant, if you're kind of in the middle, you're not growing. And there's a place of misery, discomfort for a believer, conviction. And then the second thing I, I said, yes, the world offers a form of happiness. I've mentioned that throughout this. Things that get us excited. We get the win. We celebrate. It's great. But it doesn't last. We know that. It's like, oh, I can't wait for Disney World. And I go, and then we're back home. And then it's like, next trip, where are we going? And we live our lives for these moments of expectation, anticipation for these gods that always fail us. They always leave us disappointed. They're fun for the moment, but they're not lasting. And we know that to be true because idols fail because they're not real. They're false. And so we grow spiritually, and it brings joy in our ministries to others, working with others for their joy. And we're growing as we serve others. Paul said the exact same thing in 2 Corinthians 1.24. He said, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. We're working for your joy because you stand firm in the faith. Working for someone's progress in the faith is working for their joy. And so he says, I'm working for your growth and your joy. And then look at verse 26. So that in me, in my sacrificial service to you, Paul says, you may have ample cause to glory me. To glorify me, Paul says. No, of course not. He says to glory in Christ, Jesus, because of my coming to you again. Paul didn't hide the fact. He was a tool. He was an instrument for God. And he says, glorify God in me. As I serve Jesus, as I follow Jesus, you can glorify God in me because I'm working for your good. I'm working for your joy. And in that, God gets the glory, not Paul. God gets the glory, but I get the joyous benefit of being the tool God uses for that act of service. And I don't know how a Christian can live life without using our spiritual gifts in ministry. I don't. I don't know how that if God has given us at least one spiritual gift to use for the edification of others, how we can just go about and not engage the body of Christ and use that gift. And the bad thing is, not only does it hurt us, which it does, it hurts those around us in the body. Because we have something to offer and something to give that they need spiritually. So whether it be encouragement, hospitality, even a gift like administration, pastor, teacher, prophet, evangelist, these gifts come together and they serve the body and they build up the body so that we can be what Randy Alcorn said, a place where people say, whoa, those people are different. I mean, they're just happy. 
And I see them out in, in town on, on Monday and Tuesday, and, it, and it's not two-faced. They're not different on Sunday than they are Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Same guy, same person, happy in the Lord, not perfect. Doesn't mean they don't struggle. Somebody doesn't drive by and run through a mud puddle and splash you, and you're like, oh, praise you, brother. Thank you for doing that. No. I mean, we, we get, oh, man, my, my, I'm going to have to get these pants washed, get them dry cleaned. But you know what? We don't get hung up on that. Our momentary reaction could be rough, but we say, no, God's got a good, different purpose. If I'm walking in the Spirit, I'm allowing the Word of Christ to fill me up. I can respond differently. So we're using our gifts. We're discipling others, and we're allowing our joy to overflow into the life of others. So back to the K-group model. Just think about it for a second. I really want to hit this because this is really the, the most obvious way to put yourself in community with others so that you can impact others. Because chances are, if you're sitting in a seat, which you are right now, you're making very little impact on other people in this room. All right? Maybe it's encouraging that you're here, but the way you impact people spiritually is to get close to them. You don't do it from a distance. You get up close and personal. And K-groups give you the opportunity to be able to be in community with others so you can pray for them like I talked about, but you can serve them. You can use your spiritual gift in their life in real practical ways. And then also, like our model, I don't know if he put it up on the screen yet or not, but our model then, it gives you an opportunity to even move beyond the big group to a small group, even into a smaller group, which the guys, we like to call them fight club. Ladies, call them whatever you want. But we, we like to call it fight club because this is like two or three where there can be real accountability, real life-on-life life interaction. I can say, you know, Justin, how, how's it going in the Word this week? Well, John, it's going really good. You know? Mark, how are you doing in the, in the reading plan? Doing great. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really learning a lot from Genesis crazy about Lot and Abraham. Whoa, it's a weird situation there, but I'm, I'm learning, I'm growing. And we hold each other accountable in these groups where we can really make a difference and build into their life and make this realistic living for life for one another. So, is your joy spilling over? But some of you say, I don't have any joy to spill over. I've got nothing, really. I mean, I don't. I don't have anything. Tomorrow in my email, I'm going to put in a links for two different books. I'm going to just talk about those who maybe feel chronically just unhappy. There's one book called Your Health, and it's a gospel-centered approach to various things that we face or various habits or addictions that we can fall into. Things like smoking, overeating, anxiety. And it's really a practical, gospel-centered way of tackling some of these things in your life. Because we, I know that our, our health and our fitness can make a real difference in our unhappiness and our happiness. And so we're a human being. We're a whole person. And so we need also our physical help to be addressed. Sometimes there's needs for even medication. There's another book that I'm going to give you the link. It's, it's, it's called Christians Get Depressed Too. And some of you have been dealing with depression, plain and simple. You don't feel encouraged by life. You feel like every day is a drudgery. You're just going through the motions. There's no excitement in your life, your spiritual life. God is just a chore that you do and check off. Well, there may be medical needs that need addressed in your life. 
This book can help direct you toward that. But happiness is not only possible for the Christian, it's expected. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And maybe for some of you, it's just you're not really sure what happiness means and what that looks like, and you've missed maybe a week or two here. Let me go back to my definition that we've been using by Randy Alcorn. True happiness, the kind God wants for us, is not pasting on a false smile in the midst of heartache. It's discovering a reasonable, attainable delight in Christ that transcends difficult circumstances. You know, Paul wasn't superhuman. I mean, it's easy to look at his life and think, well, of course, he's an apostle. I can't be like that. I can't do that. But what I love about Paul is Paul felt the range of emotions just like we do. In fact, in, in Corinthians, it, it says that he felt that he had received a death sentence at one time. But he said that it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but upon God who raises the dead. I love that. I feel like I'm in a death sentence, but my faith is so strong in God that I know he raises the dead. Spiritually, I can't live in this spot. I feel this way. And Paul grew through his experiences. So very practically, many of us need to learn to distinguish between belief and feelings. It's an important part of Christian maturity. To be able to distinguish between belief and feelings. Belief and feelings. Paul always operated out of his beliefs. He knew Jesus. He believed Jesus. He trusted him. He can raise the dead. So I may feel like I'm dying here. It's so tough. It's so difficult. Man, I got hit in the face when I got abused and beat, but I'm going to keep singing even though it hurts. It doesn't feel good, but I'm going to sing out because Jesus is worth it. I wish I could say I was at that level. I doubt I am. I no, no question. I don't know if I could be doing that. But Paul's human. He's not superhuman. And the Holy Spirit enabled him to live in the supernatural way because he trusted Christ. A couple of the guys in ministry who are kind of like my heroes, kind of guys who I've read a lot, never met either one of them. One is Tim Keller, who I quoted earlier, and one is John Piper. And I thought this was really interesting, that this story, because it really brings some of these people we kind of revere and think, oh, you know, they're so beyond me, and I could never obtain that. But this story where John Piper writes that when he was around 40 years old, that he and his wife were visiting, they were vacationing in California, and he, he wrote this, he said, I felt depressed while I was there. One morning I was sitting on the stairway to the second level of, the, of their house where he was staying, crying. My wife found me and was startled because that's not typical. She asked me, what's wrong? And I simply said, I don't have any idea. But I love the advice that he gives to this situation. He said, get up in the morning before your children. I know that's a challenge if they have to be at school at 7.30, but I did it for years. And I know it's critical. Get up before your children, go to your private place, get down on your knees before God Almighty and beg Him for strength for another day. Ask that He will fulfill His promise never to leave you, never forsake you. Ask that He would help you and strengthen you 
and uphold you by his word. Tell him every morning that he is your only hope as you instruct these children in his word. You see, that's what I wrote about Keller earlier from Keller. There's not this conflict between worship and feelings and actions. We, we, we pursue God even when we don't feel like it. We don't allow our feelings to trump our beliefs. And so maturity is growing in that. And then the other pastor I referenced earlier, Tim Keller. You may not realize this, some of you may. He was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer last year. And he talks about the fact that he and his wife now, they're looking to God in ways they never imagined before. And he said that both he and his wife, Kathy, never want to go back spiritually to where we were before the cancer diagnosis. What? We never want to go back to where we were before spiritually, before the cancer diagnosis. Why? Here's his quote. I'm actually happier than I've ever been on a given day, he continues. I enjoy the things around me in a way that I've never experienced them before. I see them as gifts of God, and I enjoy my prayer life more than I ever have in my life. These are guys, flesh and blood. And maybe you can relate to them easier than you can the Apostle Paul. Real situations, real hardships, yet they continue to seek after God, and God provided the joy through the trial, in the midst of the trial. Here's my final caution to you in this area of happiness, and we're done. There's another pastor, we'll mention his name, who's equally as famous as either one of these guys. He's di- he died recently. As more and more details of his life are coming out, he lived a completely double life, it appears. It appears as if he was brilliant, knowledgeable beyond any of us, could speak and argue the gospel, articulate with such precision, but yet he had the secret life that he was living, it appears, all along. What happened? He stopped appropriating the gospel into his real life. He stopped taking the knowledge and applying it. It's like carrying around a toolbox. Everything you need to get the job done. And either you forget that the tools in there you need, or you think, I'll just do it with my hand. I'll just twist this thing off with my hand. When all along, you've got a beautiful tool that's been given to you just to crank that thing out with very little effort. That's appropriation. It's taking what's already been given to you and applying it, putting it to work. And I don't care if you've been a believer here for 30 years or three minutes. We must appropriate the knowledge that we have. We have to put it to use. We have to take the steps to apply it to our lives. We have to, as Piper said, figure out a way to get up before the kids because, God, I need you. I can't get through this day and be what you've called me to be without it. And it's in that growth, it's in that pursuit, we find our happiness. And then it's not just I'm happy, but then it just becomes natural that I want other people to experience the same joy. And I'm giving 
my life away for others. I'm working for your joy as well as my joy. You get joy, I get joy as I appropriate the gospel. So our head, heart, and hands for our head today, Jesus is joy. Jesus is joy. The gospel is joy. The heart is, you must appropriate that, the gospel, the knowledge that you know, the scriptures that you've learned, and continue to be in the word and learn the word. So as situations come up, you can specifically apply the gospel to that. A temptation. You recall verses that I quote like all the time, Galatians 2.20, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life I'm living right now in the body, I've got to live by faith, God, that, that what you say is better than this because this seems pretty good right now, God. But you said this is better. This life I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and who gave himself for me. I no longer live. And so we take the gospel and we appropriate it in our lives. I can't love them. They're too hard to love. The Holy Spirit reminds us, greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for a friend. Jesus gave first so you can give. He came. He loved us when we were unlovable. And we take the gospel, the gospel and we appropriate it into specific areas of our life. So God gives us the ability through the gospel as we appropriate it. And then very practically, our hands today. Work for the joy of others. Pick one person to encourage in a specific way, not tomorrow, not before next Sunday, but today. Think of one person that you can specifically encourage today. Ask God during our, our closing prayer, God, who can I encourage? Who needs encouraging? You know, Valentine's Day can be one of the most depressing days of the year for many people, right? You see everybody else giving cards and roses and they're happy and it's like, I got nothing or I got no one to give to or my spouse forgot me again this year. It can be a really, really sad day, especially for those who are divorced, those who are widowed, widowers. Very, very sad day. Look for somebody to encourage. Don't just be, I got the head knowledge. I got it. God loves me. I love God. Let's go on. Bring me the blessings. But God's pouring into me. I'm appropriating the gospel. And specifically, with intent, pouring out to other people, using the gifts God has given me. Whether it be a gift that seems simple, like hospitality, hey, let's invite them. Or whether it's something that's a little more involved, maybe an evangelist or a prophet. You're speaking truth. You're good at that. You're using the gift God has given you for others. We can be that church of happiness. A place that truly people radiate the gospel. Shine Jesus. I hope you'll take up the journey for happiness if you haven't already. Know that it's a process. It's a lifelong pursuit. Nobody arrives. When you think you've arrived, that's when you better be ready because you're going to fall right on your face. Temptations that you thought you defeated 20 years ago will grab a hold of you and they won't let go. Stay humble as Paul. God, be glorified in me. Father God, we thank you for your word that doesn't allow us to live where we're at, 
but it constantly challenges us to put more and more hope and faith and trust in you. And we know the nature of real faith means that we take action. And God, I pray that you'll help each person in here to specifically think of someone who they can encourage today, whether it be a note, a hug, invite out to lunch, something, God, today to be an encouragement, whatever you put on their heart. God, help us not to be so selfish that all we see is what's in front of us, but help us to love others and pursue their their discipleship for their joy and our joy as well. In Jesus' name we pray.